have a good time at Children's Church. You see, who do we, boy, we got all kinds of help back there. All right. It's going to be a good day. Going to be a good day. And church, you're doing well? How are we? Good? Huh? Fantastic? All right. Glad to hear fantastic. Glad to hear fantastic. There's another person who's doing really fantastic this week, or at least they're, they're planning to be. Did you see that, um, I guess earlier this week, somebody in California won just about a billion dollars in Powerball? Uh, I don't know if you're a Powerball follower or not. I'm not. But when somebody wins a billion dollars on a $2 ticket, that's, that's newsworthy, I guess. Well, it got Melanie and I thinking this week. We are not lotteryers, and I hope that you're not either. But um, here, is, here is the conversation that we had at one point. If we were suddenly billionaires, I know none of you have ever imagined anything like that. But if we were suddenly billionaires, there are a couple of things that we would want to do. And, and in fact, there are probably a lot of things that we would want to do. And we decided that we would need to have some people come around us to help us do some of those things. And we thought first about Clint Oberholzer. <clears throat> we thought we are going to need to have Clint available. Clint, for those of you, if you don't know Clint, he's in the back too. And he'd love to stand up and wave hi. But he's the... Uh, He's the owner of CR Construction and uh, has done a good job for us in the past. And we've had some little things done, needed to be done around the house. And, and I got to thinking, how much would it cost billionaire Jesse if he called up Clint today and said, Clint, for the rest of your career, and you've got 25 or 30 years left, for the rest of your career, Clint, I want you to be available for me anytime I call you if I need to build something or fix something or put a new school out there or we need to, and billionaire Jesse is calling you, Clint, I'm going to write you a check today. You name your price. What's it cost for me to have you work for me for the rest of your working life? And, and because this was a ridiculous conversation, and all this happened in about 30 seconds, I said to Melanie, I wonder what his price would be. If I offered him... If I offered him a million dollars today for the work that he's going to do, would he take it? Now, it might take, maybe it would take two million. But what would it take to have, now he's got to work for me instead of working for, maybe it takes nine million. If I'm a billionaire, it doesn't matter, does it? And then I got to thinking, well, what would it take if someone asked me? If they said, Jesse, I want your services. I want you to come and preach anytime I ask you. I want, I don't know what, Somebody might ask me or try to pay me to do, but if they said for the rest of your life, for the next, you're 45, until you retire, if you're 65, for 20 years, I'll give you $10, $20, $30. What would it cost? What would it cost for you to give your work to someone else for the rest of your career? Now, a few of you, you're already retired. You'd have to pay somebody else, okay? That's how it works. If you're retired, then, then nobody pays you to work. You pay them. But uh, what would it cost? What's your price? That was an interesting... So, so then, because I think the way that I think, yesterday I went to the lighthouse auction. And I was talking with a couple fellows in the back, and I started talking to, um, started talking to, to Jeff. His, his family owns Holy Grounds, the coffee and donut shop out here in Oxford. And uh, the, the auction item came up, a year's supply of donuts from Holy Ground. And I don't know if any of you were following this. A year's supply of donuts apparently is a dozen a month. That's a year's supply. And so that's what was bid on. I thought, I don't know, my math is different. But, but that, was, that was a year's supply. And so I was standing beside Jeff as they were getting ready to auction, and I said, Jeff, how much would I have to pay you today 
to be able to come into your store for the rest of my life anytime I wanted to and get a donut. I'm not paying you as we go. I'm not doing installments. I would pay you in cash. And, and I told him about this little conversation that Melanie and I had, this ridiculous billionaire conversation. And I said, Jeff, if I could come in, and, and you know that there's days that I'm not going to want a donut, and there's days that I'm going to be on vacation, and maybe I will get so large that my doctor will tell me no more donuts. Jeff, how much cash would it take for me to be allowed to come into your shop any time for the rest of my life and get a donut? And he laughed and said, well, that's a really interesting question. I did not get an answer. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if it was a good answer, I might have I had some cash in my pocket. I like thinking about those little things. I, I enjoy having those. Little, what, what about this? What about that? I know there are some of you in the room who hate those hypothetical questions. I, I know, and I apologize for the last three minutes if that's you. But what kind of what item, what kind of number, and if you're thinking economically, what kind of dollar sign does it take to get your attention? What kind of number does it take for you to give your time? What kind of cause does it have to be for it to be worthwhile for you to make a move? What kind of an opportunity does it have to be for you to be willing to consider it? This is the kind of thing I want to think about today with you. Because here's what I wonder about. You know, last week we talked about, um, we talked about the, the woman who emptied a jar of very expensive perfume, perfume that was worth a year's wages. She emptied it on Jesus, and, and everybody around her kind of clucked, and they were indignant. They said, that could have been sold, and the money could have been given to the poor. Jesus said, no, this is, this is a good thing that she's doing. She's anointing me for my death that is coming soon. And so what some saw as waste, Jesus said, no, this is not wasteful. This is beautiful. And I've been thinking and wondering what it is that, that we might have the wrong descriptions about. What are the things that are beautiful that we might, out of our training, out of our habit, out of our own judgmentalism, what are the things that are beautiful that we might call wasteful? And are there any things in your life or mine that are wasteful that we think are beautiful? I think the Bible can help us to sort all this out, but, but I think as we look at all this stuff, we're looking at this through the framework of how Jesus treated his disciples, how Jesus is, is challenging them, and especially how he's recorded to have done that in Mark chapter 14. So I'm just wondering, as we go through today, we're going to see what Judas's price was. We're going to see what Simon's price was. We're going to see what another young man, we're going to see what their prices were. What did it take to either draw them in or scare them off? But I'm going to ask you over and over again, what has your attention and your time? Does Jesus have it? Has he earned it? Have you given your attention and your time away to something other than Jesus? Have you sold yourself? Have you chased, other, other, have you chased after other opportunities, other idols or other gods? You know, there have been two men in the last 10 days. Two men in the last 10 days. They're not sitting in this room right now, and you probably don't know them. But there are two guys in the past 10 days who have told me that they have been through major health scares. And they have realized, and, and both of them told me this independently. It was odd that I keep hearing this. They both look me in the eye, and these are both men of working age, okay? These are both guys who have careers that... The harder you work, the more money you make. This is these kind of fellas, and this is what they told me. 
They said that they have both realized that they need to work less and be content with less and spend their time better, especially spend their time with God and family in a way that previously they had been devoting to work. Major health scares have gotten their attention. I thought that was interesting. And so as I hear God kind of speaking these things to me, I feel compelled to share them with you. And then just one more quick personal story before we get into our scripture. On October 20th, just a couple weeks ago, I got a text from my mother. It was sent out to me and my siblings. My mom said, Aunt Linda found out, this is my Aunt Linda, Aunt Linda found out that she has pancreatic cancer that spread to her liver. That was on October 20th. She hadn't been feeling great for a while, but there was no diagnosis, nothing had been nailed down. On October 20th, what is that? Two, two and a half weeks ago. Got a text that said, Aunt Linda has pancreatic cancer that spread to her liver. We knew she didn't have long. And we had a funeral for her on Wednesday. Thirteen days. Thirteen days turned from, I just don't feel very well, to being lowered into the grave. How are you spending all that you have and all that you are and all that you have been given? What are the assumptions that you're living with that need to be deconstructed? What are the things that you're putting off that had better get started today? Let's think about this together. So turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Verses, we're going to look at a big chunk of Scripture today. We're not going to dive in depth with all of these verses. Some of this we're going to go through quickly because we've talked about a few of these things within the last couple weeks as we did communion and foot washing and all of that in early October. But here in Mark chapter 14, I'm going to start in verse 10. We're picking up the story. Um, This is the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. And and last Sunday, one week ago, I preached to you from uh, Mark chapter 14, and we looked at verses 1 through 9. And again, it's a story of this woman who came to Jesus while he was reclining at the table and eating with friends. and, And she broke open this very, very expensive jar of very expensive perfume. She anointed Jesus. People around said that money could have been given to the poor. But Jesus said, no, this is a good thing that she has done. And in fact, we know from the Gospel of John that Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples, Judas, who had been called by Jesus three years earlier, Judas, who had been with Jesus, just like Peter and Andrew and James and John and these other disciples, has been with Jesus, following him closely for three years. We learn that Judas was one of the main instigators of that conversation and that criticism that said this woman should not have done this. She should have sold the perfume given the money to the poor. So here we pick up in Mark chapter 14, verse 10. It says, then, that is after Jesus corrected the group and said what she is doing is beautiful, then Judas Iscariot, Iscariot means from a place called Karios. Judas is actually the only disciple who was not from the same region of Galilee where the others are. Judas grew up about number of miles away. Just an interesting little piece. So Iscariot, not really a last name as much as it is an identifier as far as where he's from. Jesse Quarryville, you know, is is getting ready to talk to Robert Christiana. I don't know. Where's home, Robert? What town is that that you name? See, this is the kind of thing that they used to do. Where are you from? This is how we figure out who we are. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests. This is the chief priests of 
Judaism. These are Jewish priests. These are the people who, in the end of Mark 13 and beginning of Mark 14, they're identified to be scheming to figure out how to kill Jesus because Jesus has been so offensive in their perspective. Judas went to the chief priest to, de- to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Now, last week, again, we're kind of, these, these passages all go together, right? It's all the same chunk of scripture. It's the same stories about the same kind of a week. Last week, our jar of perfume that we talked about was labeled as being worth more than a year's wages. Probably about 300 denarii. A denarius was a day's compensation for a worker. You worked a day, you typically at the time of Jesus got paid a denarius. And so this perfume was worth 300 denarius, worth about a year's worth of wages. We know from other chunks of scripture and from what we're going to continue to see in Mark that Judas received from these priests, he received 30 pieces of silver. Each piece of silver was worth about four denarius, so each piece of silver worth about four days' work. So Judas received 30 pieces of silver, 120 denarii, for what he was doing in selling out Jesus. According to the book of Exodus, by the way, 30 denarii is about the price of a slave. There's a really, really fun story that talks about if you own a bull and you are not properly penning up your bull and it gores someone and kills them, you need to pay their family 30 denarii. That is the price if your bull, that's your liability. If your bull kills a common person, that's maybe just trivia, but it'll be good for your life. I guarantee you that'll pop up somewhere else before you die. But Judas received 30 pieces of silver from these priests to betray Jesus. Maybe that was worth half a year's wages or a little less. So, so what's that worth in today's parlance? What's, what's half a year's wages for a common working man? Boy, we could throw out all... Is, is Judas getting... $20,000, maybe he's getting 10, maybe he's getting 30, depending upon how common the job, right? But this is about the amount. Judas is selling out Jesus for our equivalent of several tens of thousands of dollars. That was his price. That was what it cost for him to betray his Lord. Again, I come back and I ask you, if you're kind of daydreaming a little bit, what's your price? Maybe you haven't turned Jesus into the authorities. Maybe you're not trying to to literally kill Jesus with what you're doing. Maybe you've just disregarded him. What's it cost for you to ignore Jesus? Not killing him, just ignoring him. Some people say that hurts as much. What's it cost? What does something have to be worth for it to get your attention to ignore the service that Jesus might have called you to or to ignore the sacrifice that he might be asking you to make? What's that worth to you? What's it worth to ignore the forgiveness that Jesus is demanding that you offer to others? What's it worth for you to do your own thing? What's it worth for you to ignore the peace and the blessing that Jesus is offering? What's your price? We'll let that hang there for a minute and get back into the scripture. Mark 14, verse 12 says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, and this was a huge festival in Jerusalem, when it was customary to go sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, 
Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So we're, we're kind of changing the scene here a little bit. Judas has sold out Jesus and is waiting for the opportunity to, to let that happen. But now we're hearing that Jesus and his disciples, they're in Jerusalem. There's a huge celebration. There are people all over the place. And they're asking him, Jesus, where do you want us to go to make preparations? It says in verse 13, Jesus sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him. Now that's a fairly specific thing. It doesn't sound like it to us, but in Jerusalem in that time, men did not carry jars of water. That was <clears throat> women's work. Women carried jars of water. They took care of water for the home. Men did not do this. So if they saw a man carrying a jar of water, especially at festival time, especially with the holidays around, if they saw a man carrying a jar of water, and certainly if he met them. Jesus is saying very specifically, I've got something in mind. So if you see this man, say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Jesus is finding a room for his disciples or has found and is announcing a room for his disciples that is big enough for at least a dozen people to go and have a meal and to recline and visit and it's ready for them. Now, how many of you have a room in your house that will be big enough and ready for 15 people to come over in about an hour? Any of you prepared? Because I've got 14 friends right? This is a very specific kind of thing. Jesus says, look for the man carrying the water. Ask the man of the house, is there a room upstairs? So the disciples left, verse 16, went into the city, found things just as Jesus had told them. You see, Jesus, while he walks on the earth, has not given up all of his insight into humanity. He certainly has given up some of the power that he had when he sat at God's right hand to come down and be a human and experience all of the things that we experience. He certainly condescended himself to come and fill up a body with flesh and blood. But Jesus still has vision of the future at least in this situation, because here the disciples left, went in the city, found things just as Jesus had told them, just as he had prophesied. So they prepared the Passover. Verse 17, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, similar situation, although a very different reason for gathering, but a similar kind of situation to the beginning of Mark 14, reclining at the table eating, he said to them, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Again, Jesus is predicting the future very specifically. Jesus has told them, go find the guy carrying water, ask about a room and find it. Now they're sitting in the room, they're eating the things that have been prepared for them. Now he says, one of you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. The crowd is getting smaller, right? One of you, he says, will betray me. Jesus knows what is coming. It says in verse 19 that when they heard this, they were saddened. And look, just pay attention here what's happening. One by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. Jesus said, don't call me Shirley. And I don't mean you. And I don't mean you. And I don't mean you. One by one, they didn't all just say, oh, Jesus, it's not a, no. Think about this. That, that would be an interesting thing, wouldn't it? Let's imagine Jesus walked in the back door just right now and says, one of you is going to betray me. And all of us together, it'd be pretty easy to say, nah, not us, we're in. 
But one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. Jesus says in verse 20, it is one of the 12. Again, very specific here as things are being talked about in what's going to happen in the near future. It's one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. So Jesus says, not only is it one of the 12, it's one of you who's very close. There would have been a couple of bowls of, and there are some details that we could get into with the feast, but, but dipping some bread or maybe some meat wrapped in bread into a bowl, this was, there had been a couple bowls there. Jesus says, one of you who is very close to me, one of you who is eating with me, who is this intimate with me, he says, one of you will betray me. Verse 21, he says, the son of man, he talks about himself here, will go just as it is written about him. And remember, Mark has already recorded that at least three times before this, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be tortured, and I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. Three times it's already been told to them, but now he says, the son of man will go just as it is written about him. So Jesus has knowledge of this, right? Jesus knows what's going to happen. He has what some might call foreknowledge. Now this matters. Pay attention here because look at the next verse. Jesus says, I know this is going to happen, but woe, underline, if you have a Bible, underline the word woe. If you're looking at it on your device, tap it and highlight it. Woe, woe to that man who betrays me, the son of man. It will be better for him if he had not been born. Those of you who like to argue about foreknowledge and predestination and election and all those things, oh, what a fun argument that we've all solved so many times. If you're a person who likes to think about those kind of things, and and I know some of you are saying, what is Jesse talking about? Those of you who are not sure yet, give me 10 seconds. Those of you who are interested in the predestination election kind of thing, look what Jesus does. Jesus says, I know the future, and yet Judas is still to blame when he carries it out. Woe to him. Just because God knows doesn't mean that people are not culpable for their actions. Back to the text. Woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. We know that Judas made a choice. He's already been to the priest. He's already gotten his money. He's already looking for an opportunity to have Jesus turned in. Jesus says, I know that someone has done this. Jesus knows who has done it. Jesus knows that God can work all of this for good, and yet still, it would be better for Judas if he had not been born. Verse 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, says, take it. This is my body. This is communion, right? We read these verses just a month ago. Then he took a cup when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus has announced to his disciples that he is going to die and rise again. Jesus has now announced that this bread is like his body, which is going to be broken. Jesus says that this cup is like his blood, which is going to be spilled. Jesus is setting them up for what's happening and they still don't get it. But they sung a hymn, which would have been typical for that kind of a gathering. They went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 27, Jesus having prophesied that someone who dipped into his bowl was going to turn on him. Jesus said, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, Jesus said, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And now look what Peter says. Anthony, thank you so much for reading about haughty eyes. Peter is one of those people that could be tempted into haughtiness. He could be tempted into pride. Look what Peter says. 
even if all fall away, Jesus just said, you will all fall away, right? Jesus just prophesied this. And Peter's saying, Jesus, you're wrong. I mean, all these jokers, all these characters, all these guys who don't love you as much as me, they might all fall away, but I will not. You see, that, that sounds like a declaration of faith, doesn't it? It sounds almost, if we don't pay too much attention, it sounds like Peter's just saying, no, Jesus, I really love you. What Peter is saying is, Jesus, you're wrong. We're not all going to fall away because I'm going to stick around. Verse 30, truly I tell you, Jesus answered. If, if it was today's words, Jesus might just say, seriously, guys. Truly I tell you, Today, even tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. What they said to Jesus was, Jesus, our price is not so low that anyone can threaten us enough to turn our backs on you. Jesus, our integrity is so great. Our faith is so high and we love you so much that there is no price that we must pay. We will give our lives for you. That's their price according to them. But what does Jesus know? What, what did he say? You'll all fall away. And one of you is even going to betray me. So now, Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to all his disciples, he said, sit here while I pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. So all the disciples are there and he said, sit here while I pray. And then he took Peter, James, and John, three who were probably his closest disciples and Peter who said, even if all fall away, I will not. And men who said, even if we have to die with you, we will. He took them a little further into the garden. And he was deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to these three, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he said to them, stay here and keep watch, which by the way, is the same thing he said to the crowds. Watch is the very last word of Mark chapter 13. There are things coming, he said, in the future, things about the end of times and the end of days. You all must keep watch. Now he tells his disciples, especially these three, stay here and keep watch. Verse 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Jesus knew what was coming and he knew his father in heaven loved him and he knew what the plan was. He knew what his death would accomplish. And still he said, God, if there's any other way, could we please do it that way? I don't like this way. But here was Jesus. Verse 36, he says, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Abba is the same word, if I understand correctly, Abba is the same word that Isaac would have said to Abraham when Abraham was getting ready to sacrifice him. Isaac called out and said, Abba, what's going on here? And Jesus now cries out to the father, Abba, father, daddy, pop, if anything is, well, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. But you see how Jesus responds to his father. But, but not my will, what you will. What is Jesus' price? What does it take to get Jesus to turn on God? Well, there is no price that can be paid, right? You see Jesus here. Jesus says, I have my preference. I have what I wish. I wish. Oh, Father, I pray that I don't have to go through what I know is ahead of me. But he says, Father, 
There's no price that can distract me from you. Even if I must give my life, I will give my life. Not what I will, but what you will. And then Jesus, verse 37, returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. These ones who were supposed to sit there and keep watch, because what does Jesus know? Jesus knows that there are people who are looking for his life. He knows that someone has betrayed him. He knows that they are out in a garden alone. This is a pretty easy spot to be arrested compared to when you're in the city around all the holiday festival holiday festivities, easy to say. Jesus, who has these disciples and they say, no, we'll never fall away. Even if we have to die, we'll die with you. He says, good, stay here and keep watch. Comes back from his prayer, finds them sleeping. What does Jesus call Peter here? What does, when Jesus calls him out, what does he call him? What's it say on the screen? Just, he calls him Simon. Why does he call him Simon? Simon used to be his name, right? Some people call him Simon Peter. Growing up, his name was Simon, but, but Jesus, upon, upon Simon's declaration of faith, Jesus says, I will call you Peter, and you are the rock upon whom I will build my church. Peter meaning rock. What does Jesus call Peter here? He calls him Simon. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the only time after Peter gets his new name that Jesus goes back and calls him Simon. Every other time Jesus talks to him, calls him Peter. In this moment, calls him Simon. Why? Because he can see in Peter this weakness coming out. Jesus sees what is happening. He even sees what his closest friends are doing. But how does he respond? Look at this. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. So what does Jesus do? Once more, verse 39, he went away and prayed the same thing. Father, if you could take this away from me, I would love it if we could do something else, but not your will, or not my will, your will be done. When he came back, verse 40, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. You and I have all been there, haven't we? We've betrayed friends or we haven't, been, we haven't been strong enough or we didn't know what to do or we forgot. And then someone asks you, well, did you do this? Have you been taking it? And we say, oh, oh. Jesus' disciples, those who, those who, they have to die with him. They can't stay awake for him, but they'll die for him, right? Just hours ago, we'll die for you, Jesus. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus saw it all happening, saw it all coming, and yet he still walked into it because he knew this was God's plan. He, he knew Peter's weakness, and he knew the weakness of the rest of his disciples, and he still let it fall into place because he knew that it was God's plan. He knew that Judas had sold him out. He, he knew that he, he could... He probably knew when he called Judas in the first place that this would happen. And yet Jesus still lets all this happen and still gives opportunities for all of these people to keep turning back to him. We know that despite some of the, some of the weak and shameful things that Peter does, that when Peter repents, Jesus says, I reinstate you, you're back all the way in. And it seems as if Judas would have repented that he could have been forgiven too. He didn't go that way. We'll get there eventually. Jesus says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer, that's what Mark calls Judas. 
Mark, do you remember from the beginning when we started studying Mark, who was Mark's source? Mark was not one of the disciples. He was not present for all of these things that he wrote about. Somebody was and gave Mark the information. Mark wrote it down. Who talked to Mark? Who was the voice? It was Peter. Peter was the source for much of Mark's writing. And so Peter said to Mark, and Mark wrote it down, the betrayer arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. There has been, in some theological circles, there has been in recent years an attempt to kind of look at Judas in not such a dark light. There have been some people that have suggested, and, and, and a lot of folks do this, you can see this kind of attitude in our culture because of the way movies are. How many movies have you watched in the last 20 years where somebody who, by all of God's rules, would be a bad guy is now the good guy because there's this one little thing, the, the anti-hero how many of you have seen that? The, the complex, we don't know if they're totally, is, is, is Batman good or bad? Well, there's the good because he does some good, but there's the bad because of the inside and the, oh, there, there, is, a, there is a desire in our culture these days to, to justify the evil things that we do because maybe there was one or two good things that we did. And that's happened in theology too. There have been people that are saying, well, maybe Judas wasn't all bad. Judas just, he knew what Jesus was going to do. And so he wanted to get it going so he could be part of God's plan. Yet Peter and Mark call him a betrayer. Some people say, well, Judas was just thinking like a Jewish person of the day, expecting the Messiah to be the king, the conqueror, the warrior, the one who was going to come in and, and take over the one who was going to kick out all the Romans. And, and, and some people have suggested maybe Judas was thinking that. And Judas thought, if I can just get Jesus arrested, then finally he'll you know, turn into the hawk and wipe out the bad guys and we can be who we're supposed to be. I don't know. That's a neat story. That's, that's a neat idea. But, but what does Jesus say? Oh, the person who does this, it'd be better if they had never been born. Woe to them. Mark calls him a betrayer because Peter said that he was a betrayer. I don't know. It, it looks to me like Judas has literally sold himself out. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Our Savior betrayed with a kiss in the name of love. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Peter struck Malchus. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus healed that man's ear. Jesus says, am I leading a rebellion? Says this to the crowd of arresters. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus knows what God is doing. Jesus knows what's happening. He knows that he is fulfilling scripture as the Messiah, as God's son, as the savior of man. And then what does it say in verse 50? Another one of Jesus' prophecies come true. What does it say in verse 50? Everyone deserted him and fled, just like Jesus said they would. All these fellows, no, we will die with you. Nah, everyone deserted him and fled. Peter, who said, oh, Jesus. Peter, who walked on water. Peter, the rock upon whom the church is built. Deserted Jesus and fled. And then this very interesting two verses. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. We know that a linen garment would have been really nice underclothing. Common folk wore wool 
undergarments. This person had a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. In other words, they seized this young man who was following Jesus, and he squirmed and, and squiggled so much to get away that his, his clothing ripped off and he ran away naked. There's, there's a, lot, a lot of folks who suggest that perhaps this was John Mark, the writer of the gospel, saying, even I was there. And I ran away and fled and hinting at the blessing of Jesus that says, even if you turn from him, if you will turn back, he will forgive you. Mark is writing his gospel, and some have suggested that this little two-verse incident that seems kind of random is really Mark's testimony that says, even I turned my back on him. Even I fled. And yet the love of Christ is such that I could be forgiven because of what Christ did. Church, what's your price? I mean, what's it, what's it take for you to turn your back on Jesus? And maybe, maybe it's not a literal running away naked like this young fellow did. Maybe it's not like actually speaking bad things about Jesus like Peter eventually did. Oh, I don't even know him. I don't know this character. No, not me. I mean, maybe you haven't even taken money to turn Jesus in, but, but let's be honest. All of us have traded Jesus for something at some point or another, what's your price? I mean, what did it take for you to turn away, for you to ignore, for you to disregard? Have you sold Jesus out for money like Judas did? Have you sold out Jesus because of fear and embarrassment like Peter did? Or have you fled in shame like the young man did? I, I, we've all got different stories, and there's different, ways that, there's different ways that we respond, but I want you to think about it little commercial break before we wrap this up. And I think you'll see a point to this. A couple of weeks ago, we had a corn harvest. I mentioned it last week that we, we were excited that, that um, we had harvested the corn, that um, half of the money from raising this corn goes to, goes to um, Growing Hope Globally, a, a mission that, that helps folks around the world who don't have food to eat. We, we have, um, for, for about 10 or, 10 or 11 years, We've had a project like this here at Waterway where we've had donated land, donated seed, donated fertilizer and labor and equipment from just folks that we know. And then whatever we make off of that crop, half of it gets donated to missions and half uh, historically had been given to the building fund, but it's all, it's, all just, it's all just given. I told you last week, I believe, that, that we harvested 248 bushels of corn on every acre, which is a lot. It's a very good crop. That's a blessed crop on good ground with good weather, good circumstances, and lots of folks pitching in, okay? I had, um, had someone, when I shared that number last week, there was someone who's a little bit like me that got into the numbers, and they said um, 248 bushels, and that's off of every acre of corn. We had about 20 acres, round numbers, okay? 248 bushels equals 13,888 pounds of corn. 248 bushels equals 13,888 pounds of corn. So on every acre that we harvested, we got 13,888 pounds of corn. And then this person told me, and they, they knew it because they were there when it happened. They said, for every acre that yielded 13,888 pounds of corn, they planted about 20 pounds of corn. In other words, back in the spring, 
there was 20 pounds of corn seeded into every acre. Through the summer, it grew and grew and grew. And there was a crop. And from that 20 pounds of seed on every acre, we harvested 13,888 pounds of seed from every acre. If you're doing quick math, uh, that's about a 700 times increase. If you're doing exact math, that's a 694 times increase. One kernel of corn put into the ground on average yielded 700 more kernels of corn. Now, there's a whole lot of science that goes into that corn and goes into that care and goes into that harvest. But if God can design food like that for people like us, if God can design plants that will, that will yield a, boy, I'd be happy with a 20 times increase, a 30 times increase. 40 years ago, some of you were really excited if you had a 300 times increase. But, but God has given us these plants that have a 700 times increase. God says, whatever you need, I've got you. I can give you 700 times what you need. What is your price? What does it cost for you and I to sell out the God who says you need 700 more times? I got that. Just plant it in the ground. Do you see what I'm saying here? This is our God. This is our Lord. So incredible that you put a seed in the ground, you get 700 more, and yet we're selling ourselves out for a half a year's wages? Judah says, just give me 30 pieces of silver? Really? People are getting mad about, about a year's worth of wages of perfume being put on Jesus. What, Jesus can't give 700 times more of that? You see what I'm saying? The God that we are invited to serve, the Jesus who gave his life for us, says, I've got you. Whatever you need, I can give it. God doesn't make things easy. Be careful. I'm, I'm not stepping into this health and wealth thing, and, and everything's going to be great if you follow Jesus. No, everything's not going to be great if you follow Jesus. Life will be hard, and you may die. But let me tell you that everything will be right if you follow Jesus. Maybe not on this earth, but there is a promise for heaven and eternity, and that's a greater than 700 times return. Church, what I'm testifying to you about today, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward and get ready to wrap this thing up. What I'm testifying to you about today is that God in heaven, his son is Jesus. Jesus came to save us. He gave his life and he died on the cross for our sins so that if we will turn to him and turn away from our sins, we can be saved. That God who can give us 700 times increase on some corn, that God says, follow me. Watch for me. Be ready for me. Sometimes to you, God says, serve me. Go out there and tell people about me. God says, focus yourselves on me. Sometimes God just simply says, get together with other believers and worship me. And yet we're saying no for some silver? I know. Not all of you have sold out our Lord. I know. Not everyone is Judas or even Peter or the young naked guy running away from the arresters. But if we're honest, all of us at one point or another have turned away from Jesus for something that was a whole lot less than the life that he offers us. Why? Why? We all have to decide today, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, but especially if you've never given your faith to the Lord Jesus, we all need to decide today, what are we going to do 
with this Jesus who keeps calling people back. He said to Simon, I know you rejected me, but come and, and I've got work for you to do. Jesus said, I mean, John Mark was restored. We read about him in the book of Acts and he didn't become perfect, but he was, he was certainly forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and, and used to do incredible work. I mean, Jesus can even redeem all the messy things that you've done. Even if you've been a sellout, you don't have to keep being a sellout. Stop it. Come to Jesus. This is your chance now. You've got to decide what you're going to do with Jesus because I'll tell you what, there are some people that don't have much time left. I was reminded of that this week by a woman I loved who had 13 days from the time she was told she was sick until she was, I assume, believe in hope, in glory with the Lord. Your life is not promised to you, folks. Tomorrow is not promised to any of us. What are you going to do with this Jesus? Well, would you pray with me? I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn to him right now. Lord God, I thank you for this chance to be together. I thank you for this chance that we have to, to read your word in scripture. I thank you for this chance that we have to think together about how we're following you. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and move within us now. I believe that there are some people in this room right now who need to make a recommitment to Jesus Christ. I know that there are people in this room who are saved but who feel like sellouts. I know there are people in this room who have been, who have been attempting or intending or at least announcing that they're following Jesus but have not been for a long time. And if you are one of those people who, who has been saved in the past but you need to recommit your life to Jesus, I just ask that you would do that right now. In your heart, just say, Jesus, I want to come back to you. If you're one of these people that has been straying away for too long, if you've been ignoring something that Christ is calling you to do, or if you've been just kind of kind of pushing off the life that he's calling you and inviting you to live, just come to Jesus right now and, and in your prayers, you could just say silently to him, Jesus, I am sorry. Forgive me. I believe in you and I am yours. Have any of you made that commitment today? And if you're sitting in this room right now and, and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never been at that place where you actually wanted to take that step to say, I believe in him. I give my, my sins to him because only he can deal with it. And I give my life to him because only he is worth it. If you are at that spot today where for the first time you are believing in Jesus Christ and you want to give your life to him, just as you pray, you can say to Jesus, Jesus, please forgive me. Jesus, I know that you are the Son of God, and I know that you can change my life. Jesus, please forgive me and be my Lord. You can pray that right now. Is there anybody in the room who's prayed that for the first time? If there is, would you raise your hand just so I can see you and be praying for you? God, thank you for this chance to consider our lives today. And Lord, would you please move in us in such a way that we keep following hard after you. No matter what kind of temptations might be sent our way, no matter what kind of price might be dangled in front of us, no matter what kind of money or entertainment, no matter what kind of fun might entice us, Lord, help us to continue to follow after you with all that we are and with all that we do. Lord, this is our prayer and we pray it. In the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Church, will you stand and sing our closing song with us? To God alone.